Hello and welcome to Into the Basement. This is Jessica Hanna. And I'm Adrian Hanna. And tonight we're going to talk about Leopold and Loeb Part Part 2. Before we get started, I just want to uh, talk about the, or not talk about, but just refer to and mention the reference material that I used for this episode. Uh, And there's three. The first is Leopold and Loeb, Crime of the Century by Hale Higdon. Uh, For the Thrill of It by Simon Betts, and The Leopold and Loeb Files by Nina Barrett. They're all excellent, and I recommend anyone read it, read them. The Nina Barrett book is particularly interesting because it's got a lot of the do- pictures of the documents, and you can kind of read Ooh, the cool. originals and stuff, so it's pretty neato. So let's get going, shall we? All right. All right. So last time when we left off, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb had just killed Bobby Franks. Uh, he was a classmate and Richard's second cousin, mm-hmm. and they had started the process and of- a real good basketball referee. Bobby Franks. Wasn't he the one that was refereeing the, all the kids' no, he was baseball umpa- games? Umping, oh, yeah. Umping baseball. <laughs> Same thing, right? Yeah, right. Okay. So, um, he had, they had just started the process of demanding ransom from his family, who, after receiving the ransom demand, oh, were right. relieved and thought that they would be seeing Bobby that day. Right. Because that was the, the overly intellectual uh, letter yeah. that, that, that they received. They thought that it was for sure... Like a professional gang that does this for a living. Yeah. So, meanwhile, meanwhile. Th- that morning on May 22nd, 1924, the morning that they received the ransom demand, mm-hmm. a factory worker named Tony Mankey or Minky, depending on the, the source, okay. um, a Polish immigrant working at the American Maze Company, was coming home from a night shift along a path that ran parallel to the Pennsylvania Railroad tracks near Wolf Lake. Okay. All right. As he was walking, he noticed feet sticking out of a drain pipe or a drain culvert, as we would say. Yeah, that would definitely uh, stand out. Yeah. A bit panicked, thinking someone was drowning. He ran over and sure enough, it was a person. Um, However, they weren't drowning. They were clearly dead, Mm -hmm. which we have already established. Bobby did not survive this. Um, On the tracks, two electric hand cars were coming down the tracks. I am imagining... Like, not hand cars, though, or electric hand cars. I'm imagining, like, like the hand crank, like the hand hand crank ones. Every time I, I think about this, I'm uh-huh. like, there's, like, four dudes just, like, pumping along. <laughs> it's like, so he sees them, and he starts flagging them down, and he tells them what, they fa- what he found, and then the group together goes and pulls the body out of the pipe. Um, what they saw was two large wounds on the boy's forehead, long scratches running down his back, and the back of his head was really swollen. They also noticed copper-colored stains around his mouth and his genitals, which right. we know from last time they wanted to to make him unidentifiable. Make I- him I- unidentifiable, and one of those was that Na- Nathan had been told that you could identify people from their genitals. Right. Um. So the men carried the body and loaded it onto one of the handcars. This was before. It wasn't really before forensic science. They still wanted to cordon off a area, but these guys were like, we need to get this body to the police. So mm-hmm. they loaded him up on the hand cars, and as they were leaving, one of the workmen noticed a pair of tortoise shell glasses laying on the ground. Thinking they belonged to the boy, he put them in his breast pocket to give to the police. When they got to the police station, though, he put the glasses on. He was just, like, playing around because he wasn't sure if they were the boys or not. So right. he was, like, looking in a mirror with glasses, and he was like, ah, oh, they don't suit me. And so... <laughs> 
And they they also were way too strong. And so he decided that he couldn't use them. His friend saw him doing this and asked about the glasses. And then he tried them on, looking in the mirror and realized that he could see better. And he was like, I'll keep them. And when they got to the police, the police were questioning them and they asked him if they found anything else. And he said, oh, I found these glasses. And the friend was like, thanks, man. I really wanted those glasses because I had to give them to the police. Right. So... The police got them, and they they were pretty convinced that they belonged to the boy. Right. So they put them on Bobby's head. And I've seen a couple of different references. Some people said they put him on his eyes. Mm -hmm. Others said they put him on his forehead. That's weird. And I don't know if that was just like standard practice. I don't know. But anyway, so. I mean, why would you do that? I can't think of a reason. I don't know. For doing that. That's so weird. Maybe they put it on top of, maybe they meant what they meant forehead. They meant like they put it on top of his head like you'd put sunglasses on top of your head. I don't know. So. Jacob Franks is back home Mm -hmm. and he's trying to collect this $10,000 that was demanded to him last time. And in doing so, he confuses the teller at the bank he'd originally tried to, who'd originally tried to give him like new bills. Mm -hmm. But he says, no, 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 you can't give me new bills. You have to give me old bills because that was part of what the ransom note said. Right. Um, (laughs) Poor Jacob Franks. He's like totally like all messed up with all of this stuff. I I would imagine. Yeah. So back at his house... So he's out collect, trying to collect this money. Right. Back at his house, Edelson is field Samuel Edelson, who is Jacob Frank's friend, right. um, is fielding phone calls, waiting to hear from the kidnappers. Because like they said in the note, that to stick around because mm-hmm. they're going to call. However, the press had earlier heard about the kidnapping from some gossipy telephone operators. Thanks, ladies. And they started calling nonstop. A reporter from the Chicago Daily News, James Mulroy, had been sent over to the Frank's home to speak to the family. They let him in after he promised to be discreet and not tell mm-hmm. anybody what was going on. So not yet. Anyway, as he sat with the family, he received a phone call. It was his editor calling to let him know that a body of a young boy had been found at dun, Wolf dun, dun. Lake. So he, the little boy, appeared to be about 10 or 11, about 5 feet tall, weigh about 100 pounds, and he had horned rim glasses. When Mulroy asked Jacob Franks about it, because by this point, Jacob Franks has come back. Mm-hmm. Franks insisted he it couldn't be Bobby because Bobby was older, obviously, mm-hmm. slimmer, and, and didn't wear glasses. Didn't wear glasses. Right. I'm a little confused about the hundred pounds. I don't feel like any ten year old boy who's an, or even fourteen year old boy weighs a hundred pounds. Right. Do you? No. Unless they're really tall. Right. Like there's no way that like a little boy. I don't know. Uh, whatever. Maybe it was because they got you know whatever bodies. Bodies get heavier when they when they're deceased. Okay. That could be part of it. I don't know. So. <laughs> Edelson is concerned because he doesn't want to send any of the family off because right. they don't actually believe it's Bobby. They just, right. They're thinking that doesn't sound anything like Bobby. We're not going to, you know. Right. But he says to Flora's brother, Edwin Gresham, why don't you go to the morgue and see if it's Bobby? And if it is, call back, but don't like say anything more than yes, if it is and no, if it's not. And so Gresham goes away, he goes into the police station. He sees bo- He sees the body laying there. He realizes his, realizes his nephew and he looks at it and he goes, why is he wearing glasses? Right. Bobby doesn't wear glasses. And so the police are like, oh, okay. So they put that in the evidence bag right. and go from there. And then he calls Edelson and just says, yes. So after receiving that call, Edelson had the terrible task of telling Jacob. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he leans in because they're all sitting around and mm-hmm. he's trying to be discreet. And he says... He whispers to his friend that it's looking bad for Bobby. Mm-hmm. And then Jacob Franks is like, what do you mean bad for Bobby? And Edelson is like, he's dead. It's him. And they're like, and th- before Jacob Franks can even react, 
the phone rings and it's the kidnappers. This is the phone call. Edelson, hello? Hello, is Mr. Frankson? Who wants him? Mr. Johnson wants him. Who is that? George Johnson. Just a minute. He gives Jacob Franks the phone. Mr. Franks? Yes. This is George Johnson speaking. There will be a yellow cab at your door in 10 minutes. Get into it and proceed immediately to the drugstore at 1465 East 63rd Street. Couldn't I have a little more time? No, sir. You can't have any more time. You must go immediately. But, and then they hang up. Mm -hmm. Jacob Franks is all messed up. So he's just been told. That his kid's dead. That his kid's dead. But they want money for, he's confused. Mm-hmm. Like he can't wrap his, his head around it. Right. And because he's all confused, he immediately forgets the address to where he's supposed to go. <laughs> so there's a hullabaloo inside. Right. And uh, then a cab pulls up, cabbie gets out of the cab, knocks on the door, says, I'm here for Mr. Franks. And they're like, they're all standing around. They're like, should Mr. Franks go? Jacob Franks is like, should I still go? Go where? It was now, I mean, it's clear Bobby's not coming home. Right. Is it worth it? No, Sam Edelson says. It's best not to go, best not to risk it. You don't want it. What if these guys are out to get you in some way? So plus, plus, they didn't really know where to go. Right. Because they forgot, he forgot the address. Because apparently, this is one of the oversights that our boys have had. You don't just say an address once. Right. You want people to show up. Anyway, so. Well, they say you should say something three times in order to uh, get people to remember it. Oh, that's good. Good advice for those kidnappers out there in the future but also as soon as like the cabbie showed up and somebody just paid him to tell him to go away they Mm -hmm. were like just go we're not this is it's too much so sorry for your trouble dude (laughs) exactly poor poor cabbie it's like what somebody called me poor cabbie he got paid (laughs) oh yeah i guess he got paid but still very confusing ride i could imagine so a few blocks away that morning we got dickie and babe Mm -hmm. hanging about they're scrubbing the inside of the rental car over (laughs) over at leopold's house the chauffeur, Sven England, found it a bit odd since, you know what? Guess who never did any physical labor ever? Right. <laughs> Good old Nathan. Yeah. So he asked the boys what the what they were up to, and they told him that they had been they'd spilled wine and wanted to get the stains out because Loeb's dad was a teetotaler and hated was totally pro prohibition. So they were like, We don't really want to make his dad mad. Sure. Which I mean it sounds good, right? Yeah. They're doing it at Loeb's or at Leopold's house yeah. so that they can avoid plausible. Yeah. Yeah. So uh England Starts giving him advice on how to get the stains out because he's a chauffeur, right? right? He knows how to clean a car. And they're like, no, no, okay, yeah, sure, all right, you know, whatever. But mostly it's just, it's very uneventful. He just sees them cleaning the car, which, of course, makes Richard nervous. Right. Um, But they didn't really... murder the chauffeur because he saw something. (laughs) No, but it does make him very nervous. But Nathan's like, it doesn't matter, dude. We've got stuff to do. We have got to yep. get this money. He's now. This is the thing that I think is really funny about this, these two. You have Richard, who's like really into the murder. Mm-hmm. Like he wants to kill the, the boy. Like mm-hmm. that's clear. He's planned it. He's pushing it. It's you know the, they're almost gonna give up and do it another day. And then he sees his cousin and he's like, yeah, this is this is the kid we're gonna do it. Like this. The ransom is Nathan. Right. All the way. Nathan want for some, I don't know if it's like just to get the money or if it's just like he's got like, he has plans for the money. I don't really know. But it's definitely like this. This is Nathan's part of the plan. Nathan mm-hmm. really is excited about the ransom part. So um, they meant it to go down something like this. Okay. Okay. They would call Jacob Franks. Okay, it's going to get a little complicated. It's a little stupid how complicated they make it, but maybe it, maybe that's why they wanted They're it just, that way. It's confusing so that they can they can confuse everybody so that everyone no one knows what's going on. Ooh. <laughs> so 
they would call Jacob Franks and direct him to a trash can at the intersection of Pershing Road and Vincennes Avenue, where he would find a letter tucked inside. The letter would direct him to the Ross Drugstore on 63rd and Blackstone, where he would then wait in the back telephone booth for a further call. The boys would then call him from a second drugstore, instructing him to walk to the 63rd Street Railway Station and catch the 3 o'clock train. Oh, that's right. Once on the train, Franks was to make his way to the rear platform, where he would find another letter in the telegraph blanks box. So there used to be like, you could do telegraph blank forms. Yeah. The letter would then tell him to wait until he passed the red brick factory with the water tower on the roof with a white champion sign painted on the water tower. To and count to five and then the throw the bag. money as far yeah. as possible. We know that they they, they tested, that they tested out. this. Yeah. So this is the, how the plan was supposed to go. However, from the very beginning, things started to go slightly wrong. We already... Yeah, they, they, they gave him the, the address and he forgot it right yes, away. But it's more than that. So they get to the to the trash bin uh-huh. and the letter won't stick because they're trying to like tape it. But uh-huh. it's like a gross trash can right. in the middle of Chicago. <laughs> and they're trying to tape it on there and it's not going to tape. Jeez, with all the prior planning that they put into this, they didn't think to try and stick an envelope to the trash can. I don't think they, they thought all about the before. They didn't think about the after. Right. That's what we're going to learn here. So so they decided they just direct him there in the phone call. So this is, we know this because uh-huh. they've had the phone call, right? right. Um, that didn't go anywhere. So Richard was able to easily put, okay, wait. So they so then they split up. So they make the phone call. Mm-hmm. Richard goes to the train. He puts a letter in the, in the thingy. Mm-hmm. And then Nathan calls. So they split up and Nathan calls. And, so I'm a little wrong there. Sorry. So then... As they waited for him to get to the pharmacy, because they're at this point, they've called him. Mm-hmm. They, they've sent the cab. Right. They've called him. They are expecting him to come. But as they're sitting there, they see an early edition of the Chicago Daily Journal. And of course, that says there's been a young boy's body discovered in a culvert near the Illinois and Indiana border, which, you know, Uh-oh. that's where they left the baby or left the body. So, yeah. and they were flabbergasted. They couldn't believe that the body had already been found. Right. Even though they left his leg hanging out of it. Right. Um, so at this point, Richard's like, whew, we got to give this up. Mm-hmm. We cannot keep going. But Nathan is like, no. Got to get that money. We still have to get the money. Yeah. So he thinks that maybe the family doesn't know about the body. like the Right. But again, maybe they wouldn't have if, if, if Mulroy hadn't been at the house. Um, they decide to call the pharmacy and see if Mr. Franks was in. Okay. Mm-hmm. The first call, like, so they call the pharmacy and the first call is answered by a porter. Okay. So the porter says, they ask him if Mr. Franks is there. They say he'll probably be smoking. He, they describe him a little bit. And he says, no, there's nobody by that description in here. So they call, they wait a little bit and they call back a second time. Mm-hmm. And then like the pharmacist answers. And he's like, no, there's no Mr. Franks in here. We're, you know, it's like me and the porter and that's it. Yeah. And so then they're like, oh. Uh-oh. And by this point, because they waited a little bit, uh-huh. it's after three. Uh-huh. So they missed the train. Right. And then they're like, well... We might as well give this up. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they go and they go to return the rental car. All right. Okay. But just because it didn't go down the way they thought it was going to go down, they still get cocky from the get-go. They are, of course they do. They are so excited. The ransom failed, but they are, they are pumped that they got away with it. Mm-hmm. I think it's a little too early to celebrate, guys. Yeah. But, you know, but so... It didn't hurt that everyone in their lives was talking about it. So right. they get home that day and Nathan 
is his brothers won't shut up about it. Mm-hmm. And Richard is home and everybody at home is talking about it. And Nathan's like a little nervous. He's a little uncomfortable about it. He doesn't really care for this. He's like, ah, uh, I need to go for a walk. So he goes for a walk and he runs into an old teacher of his. And the teacher is like, did you hear about Bobby Franks? And Nathan's like, yeah, I heard about something. He's like, did you know him? And he's like, no, I never met him. And he's like, oh, it's really too bad. And all the papers are talking about, yeah, 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 yeah. And as this teacher is walking away, that's when Nathan's like, everyone's talking about it. Mm -hmm. Richard was right. We did a crime that is going to blow this city away. Mm -hmm. So he's pumped that they did this crime. Right. And he's convinced they're they're never going to get caught. (laughs) He's like, we're brilliant. This is great. Richard is immediately pumped and immediately loves the fact that he is gotten away with this. Like he is, he loves the idea that he knows something other, <laughs> other people don't know. So much so that on Friday, we're talking two days after the murder, he's hanging out at Zeta Beta Tau because that's what he does. And a friend of his, a friend of his, a friend of the house, he's not an actual member, but he's a friend of the house. Howard Mayer is his name. Okay. Happen, who happens to work for the Evening American or the Chicago American, possibly the Chicago Evening American. I don't really know. But this is, we're just going to call it the, the Evening American. Okay. He stopped by to like chill out and have a drink or something. So the conversation, of course, turns to the murder because it's so new and everybody's really like a little nervous about it and kind mm-hmm. of excited about it. And Richard cannot stop talking about it. And he starts talking about the phone call from the kidnappers because this has been in all the papers now that the kidnappers called. Mm-hmm. And he says, let's go down to 63rd Street and try to figure out what pharmacy he was supposed to go to. Like, he's like, let's go check it out, man. You can get the, you'll get the, you'll get the scoop because he's working for a a paper. Mm -hmm. And he says, after all, kidnappers would, oh, all right. So his theory is this. This isn't, this is Richard's quote unquote theory is that the kidnappers would probably be calling Jacob Franks again. So they they would they sent Jacob Franks to this pharmacy, mm-hmm. which they would probably be calling him from a different pharmacy at that pharmacy. Okay, that's his quote unquote theory, which okay. we know it to be actually true because right. that's the reality. He's really got some insight into these kidnappers. Yeah. yeah. So he's like, we should go down and try to find out what pharmacy it was, and if anybody called Mr. Franks at that pharmacy, and then you'll have the scoop. Mm-hmm. So Mayor was like, um. Oh, really? Dude, I just wanted to come for a, come <laughs> over here for a drink. Yeah, like he's not really into it. Leave work at work, dude. <laughs> but may but but he didn't really get interested until a couple of alumni from the university, James Mulroy, who happened to be the reporter who told the oh, family yeah, about yeah, Bobby okay. and Alvin Goldstein, his partner, because they worked in partners at this at Chicago Daily News. They come in. And Loeb put the same proposition to them, and they were like, let's do it. Let's go down there. So Mayor didn't want to be scooped, so he's like... Fine, I'm coming too. Okay, I'll come. And so then the four men went down to the area, went down to 63rd Street, and checked out every all the drugstores. And I think Loeb purposely like waited until to take him to the actual place to the last one. Right. Because like Mayor is like, I'm not... I'm we're not finding it. I'm not into this anymore. I'm I'm going to go sit in the car. I'm bored and my feet hurt. <laughs> Basically. So they were just about done with the mission when Loeb and Goldstein, so Mulroy and Mayer, I don't know if Mulroy was doing something else, but but Loeb and Goldstein go into Vander, Bo- Vander Bogert and Ross and ask the porter 
if there'd been any calls for Mr. Franks the previous day. And of course, the porter told them, yes, a man had called. Um, and Loeb goes, hey, Goldstein, you could have this. You don't, we don't have to tell the other guys. You could just have this. It could be your scoop. And he's like, no, nah, we all did this together. Let's call him in. So, so Loeb like runs out and he's like, this is the place. He's like all excitedly telling her, come on in. This is the place. This is the place. And so the reporters all go in and they talk to the porter and then they call in their, their, to their newspapers and then they call the police because of course right. this is a big thing, right? Yeah. Like this is, they found, actually found some clues. And Loeb is just like grinning from ear to ear. He's so pumped that they, that he was right. right. He was right. You know? <laughs> and all his friends are like, wow, he's really into this. You know, like, he, so <laughs> then on their way back to the fraternity, Loeb is like, hey, let's go stop and pick up some papers for my quote unquote mom. Um, and then they were like, can we take a look at them? And he's like, no, she doesn't like it when they're ruffled. So you can't look at the papers. He's definitely, he's like, this is what pe- murderers do. They, yeah. they, Gathering trophies. they gather trophies. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then of course, this is one of the most interesting things that I think Loeb does not, I don't know how people didn't fucking know it was him <laughs> because <laughs> Mulroy is right in the backseat of the car with Loeb and he goes, Hey, you knew Bobby. Who's your cousin, right? What was he like? Was he a good guy? Did, what do you think of him? And Loeb says, if I was going to murder somebody, he was just the kind of cocky little son of a bitch that I would pick. Wow. Wow. Yeah. He's like, yeah, fuck my cousin. Like, he just got murdered right. two days ago. You can't be, can't have a little feeling for him. It's crazy. So later on that day, Loeb and Nathan are, or Richard and Nathan are hanging out. And Na- Richard tells Nathan about this escapade he went on. And Nathan is like, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> what, what are you, why are you putting yourself front and center in this investigation? Why are you being such an idiot? <laughs> and Richard is like, cause it was amazing and we're getting away with this. And, but Nathan is like, okay, so because you're basically putting yourself out there, we need to come up with an alibi. Now is when they decide to come up with an alibi. Right. And so they're like, okay, let's think this through. Now, this is another, with all the planning that went, they went in, all the planning that went into murdering somebody, you would think that they would come up with an amazing alibi. Right. But they came up with no alibi. I'm going to read this to you and you tell me what you think is wrong with their alibi. Okay. Okay. So they decided to tell the police. First of all, they said they would, this would be their alibi within seven days. Okay? okay. Because anything longer than that, you couldn't reasonably remember what you were doing that day. Right? Right. So this would be what they would spout off if they were interviewed within seven days. Okay. They decided to tell police they'd gone to Lincoln Park on Wednesday afternoon in Nathan's car and drank a bit before having dinner and meeting up with a couple of girls. So that's, that's their alibi? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't see what. Okay. I'm going to read it to you again. Okay. They'll tell the police that they went to Lincoln Park in Nathan's car, drank a bit, went to dinner, and then picked up a couple of girls. Okay. Okay. Later on, you'll realize. Okay. So they also needed to get rid of the typewriter. So this is Nathan's like, Nathan's mind is going now. Mm -hmm. Now Richard is effed up in in his mind. So now he has to get rid of all these other things. So they're like, we have to get rid of the typewriter. So he takes, so they go get the typewriter and they pull off a bunch of keys, which is very smart actually. Mm. And they take the keys and they throw it into like, they go to like a, like a park and that has two bodies of water or like bodies of water that are big enough, a body of water that's big enough that they could throw the keys into one's end. And then the typewriter, typewriter, they throw it off a lagoon. Gotcha. Okay. Or they throw it off a bridge. I'm sorry. They throw the keys into the lagoon and the typewriter off a bridge. They also take the robe slash automobile blanket into the open air 
and burn it. But not all the way through, just the bloody parts. Right. Okay. And they leave it there. Because probably no one will. To be honest, it's Chicago. People yeah. burn shit all the time. It's really one of those things that like, I mean, I'm sure people burn shit all the time. People burn shit in every city mm-hmm. in the country or town or village. People burn shit outside. Yep. <laughs> That's just the way people li- yep. are. Okay. It's just a thing that happens. It's just normal. Yeah. Like if you saw a burnt out blanket, you wouldn't go, oh, there's blood on that. Right. You just go, someone set a blanket on fire. Yeah. Or a robe. I don't, whatever. So meanwhile, the police are working hard to find out why Bobby, who and why, who killed him mm-hmm. and why Bobby Franks was murdered. So because of his age, because Bobby was 14 and because he came from a wealthy family, it was, this case was always going to be taken very seriously by the police. There was never going to be like a... Oh, we're not sure right. if we what we should do. They're, they're going to put everything on it. <laughs> so the chief of police, Morgan Collins, put all available men on the case, but also kind of a little bit overdramatic about it. This is what happens in these cases. Somebody gets a kid, kid Somebody killed. Somebody from a po- powerful family. Gets killed. I mean, this is a kid, though. So yeah. it's, you know, but he says, I mean, well, certainly the murder of a young boy is awful. Mm-hmm. It's the worst thing that could pa- possibly happen. But he wasn't like brutally raped or, you know, cut apart Mm -hmm. or anything like that so calling it one of the most brutal murders with which we have to deal have had to deal seems a bit much considering that this is 1920s chicago right and there's a lot of brutal gangland stuff going on that's probably way worse than this granted it's a wealthy family who lost a little boy again i'm not being insensitive to that i just think it's a bit dramatic to be calling this the one of the worst murders they've ever dealt with right So initially, unsurprisingly, the main suspects were actually the teachers at the Harvard School, a couple of the teachers. This would be a natural choice, given that the last place Bobby had been seen was school, right? um, as well as just that they have access to him. Yeah. Um, Additionally, because the ransom note was so well written, we talked about this last time, with so few grammatical errors, the police rightly assumed that the kidnappers were educated. And of course, who's more educated than a teacher? Yep. the penmanship of the envelope was also done carefully and neatly. Again, lending itself to being a teacher. Exactly. Yeah. So interestingly, the police were also able... This is something that... This is a, I think this is really cool. And I think that probably I knew this, but I think it's kind of neat to see to talk about the fact that like there was there's typewriter science. Typewriter science? Yeah. yeah. Like, or for, there's typewriter... Forensics. Forensics. Yeah. And which is, I like, think is pretty neat. So... Yeah, it's I've I've actually heard about this. It's actually really interesting because like um, typewriters have fingerprints essentially. Yeah, well, like like the the, the uh, uh, typewriters based on the company is what quote unquote font the the letters were in. You know, so like different companies use different styles of of letters, so you could like narrow it down to a brand be- just because of of the 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 font that that was used. Hmm. And then there was other things like you know uh, like oh well we figured. out out that it was this typewriter because the it's got a wacky f key which means that it doesn't hit quite right so it's less ink on this one particular part of the f and and stuff like that which is really actually pretty interesting see that's one of the things that that's that's part of the thing so they they could tell that it was typed on a new a relatively new like within three years underwood portable typewriter so they knew they could tell that it was a specific, probably because you were like you were saying the font, mm-hmm. um, and that the typist had used two fingers and was not familiar with the touch system, which is the system that most of us use if you type and you don't look at the keyboard. That's the touch system. Right. Okay. So the reason they could tell that is because some letters were light lightly typed, mm-hmm. and some were hit so hard. 
that they almost went through the paper. Okay. So it was like, you know, it wasn't like a natural, like... You're hitting with even pressure. You're hitting with even keys. pressure. Okay. It's like they're, you know, point or like, what is it? Search and punch or search and... Hunt and peck. Hunt and peck. It wasn't hunt and peck. It was, it was, or it was hunt and yeah. peck, but it was like hunt and it was like, peck. It was like extreme hunt and peck. <laughs> yes. So... I thought that was interesting, but that also leans itself to possibly a teacher because most people don't have a typewriter. Right. Or necessarily. I don't know. I don't really know how popular typewriters were. It feels like a thing everyone had a type. It feels like everyone had a typewriter. I I think that was still in a time when typing was women's work too. So. Could be. Could be. So. Three teachers in particular stood out as suspects to the police. The first was athletics teacher Richard Williams, who had seen Bobby that night. Right. And they had spoken to him. I think he was the one who went in to the school with Dad and Edelson. Right. Um, Walter Wilson, a math teacher who'd taken a particular interest in Bobby and his brother Jacob, in fact, took them out to like a game or something and didn't bring them back until one o'clock in the morning at some point. Yeesh. So this is a person who has a history with the boys. Mm-hmm. And Mott Kirk Mitchell. Um, That's an, a name. Yeah. An English teacher with rumors swirling around him about some sexual misconduct, some sexual misconduct with the kids mm. and with other men. So there's some. So he was a he was a sex pervert. Yes, people thought that that was at the time. People thought these things about him. He's a deviant. Um, but this is also the teacher that that Leopold had run into the day before. Okay. Who had basically been concerned about it. Mm. So. He, his name will, he will basically be the guy that peep, that the police think did it until they figure out that it wasn't, that it was Leopold and Loeb. Gotcha. Um, basically because he had a mortgage due that day that was 10, ten grand. Mm. And I'm like, why you, how? Yeah. How that's... are you supposed to come up with 10 grand for a mortgage due? I, I, I there's some questionable stuff there that I want to look into. Uh, I don't know. There's like a, a, a style of loan where you have like a balloon payment at the end so like you pay like $200 a month for in for the amount for the length of the loan and then at the end you owe like $10,000 sure but this is he makes $2,000 a year Uh uh-huh so it seems crazy that five years of his salary would be due all at once like there has got to be like a like that feels like there's no way that a bank would be like oh now you've got to pay five years salary on one day can you imagine? Somebody was like, hey, Adrian. I know, I know. But this is also for, you know, the Great Depression and banks were probably doing some crazy ass yeah. shady shit. Well, the police, unfortunately, they brought these guys in and they really thought some one of them did it. One or two of them did it. Well, it seems like there's enough extenuating circumstances to m- make it plausible that any one of them did it. Sure. But you know how you don't get a confession? You don't beat them with rubber hoses. You don't um, choke them, and you do not threaten to push them out of 15-story windows, which is what the police did in this case. It sounds sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. So particularly, this was Williams and Mitchell, so the, the gym teacher and the English teacher. Now, it turns out that Williams, of course, because he didn't do anything, mm-hmm. didn't confess anything. Obviously. But Mitchell, like, told them all about his perverted stuff. <laughs> So he's like, yes, I've had sex with men, basically, Um, which is, I think, what it was. I don't I do not think that he was molesting children. I think he was a homosexual. So so they kept the men in jail. In addition to that, they kept all three men in jail for three days or for four days without any evidence. Um, And all three had solid alibis. So Mitchell was home working in his garden and seen by his neighbors. Williams was seen having dinner at a restaurant and 
Wilson's landlady said she'd he'd been home the entire evening. And I think back then they like he would have lived in a house mm-hmm. in like a room right. and she would have made him dinner like, and like stuff. Like a boarding house. Yes. Yeah. So thankfully, all three were released on Monday, May 26th. However, Sam Edelson was still fully convinced that that Mitchell and Wilson had done the deed. Like he was he he thought it was basically one of them was a pervert mm-hmm. and one of them needed money. And so they got together and, and did this thing. Um, the high profile of the case was, of course, furthered by the fact that the family was wealthy and mm-hmm. they offered a $5,000 reward. Um, the police also offered an additional $1,000 reward. And then the newspapers started uh, offering money, reward money. So there was lots of money that could come in on this, in this. And that meant that lots of tips started coming in. Right. A lot of them were silly. Like a girl who, they were, a girl who disappeared on the same day as Bobby was thought to have been killed because she saw Bobby get taken. Mm. Well, it turns out, they found her a week later, she just shacked up with her boyfriend, who was like 40 years old, and she was like 16. Um, they arrested randos all over the city. Um, they blamed it on drugs. But I think the reason they blamed it on drugs is because they wanted to get a little more money and a little more manpower from mm-hmm. federal government. Right. It was all politic. Oh, um, of course, yeah. Uh, they found just like weird people who they thought, you know, they they were acting on tips and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, but they found one in particular that was quite alluring. Alluring might be the wrong word. I'm not sure. A 10-year-old boy, Irving Hartman, had been walking about 30 yards behind Bobby on Ellis Avenue okay. um, at the time that he was taken. Uh, he stopped. He actually stopped to look at some flowers, this Irving. He, he got distracted. All the books say he got distracted by some flowers. <laughs> Just like he was 10. He right. got distracted by flowers. It's kind of cute and adorable. So I'm going to go with wholesome adorableness and not dumb kid. So he stopped to look at these flowers. And when he looked up again, Bobby was gone. So, but as, but when he looked up, he also saw what he thought was a gray Winton okay. car. Do you know what a Winton is? No. It, I, I couldn't really I mean, find any I we discussed photos. this the last episode. Yeah. There's like, back then there was like a thousand different yeah, car companies. It's, basically, it's like now kind of all the cars look alike. Uh-huh. Like the, if it's a, if it's a certain kind of style of car, like I'm pretty sure it just looks a lot like a Willie's Night. Okay. I don't really know. I couldn't find like a proper picture. Um. So he said he saw a gray Winton pulling away from the scene. And then also a lot of other people had seen a gray Winton around the school that day. So people were looking for this car. Gotcha. Like they were convinced that this was the car that was used to take Bobby. So anybody in Chicago who had a gray Winton was getting pulled over, arrested, harassed, harassed talked to. There was one guy who had the the Coke bottle glasses. Mm-hmm. I'm calling them Coke bottle glasses so you guys all know what I'm talking about. They they're tur- turtle shell glass, tortoise shell glasses, but they look like Coke bottle glasses. They're round. They're yeah. round glasses. This was the glasses that had been taken or that had been found at the scene and been reported by everybody. Mm-hmm. Um this guy wore those kinds of glasses. And drove a gray Winton. Oh, jeez. And they arrested him like four times. <laughs> and he's like, I'm parking my car and I'm never, never driving it until this is all over. Right. <laughs> so I would too. <laughs> exactly. So I'd go, I'd go to the police station and say, hello, my name is such and such. I own a gray Winton and I'm wearing these glasses. <laughs> I have an alibi. Please stop arresting me. <laughs> also, I have my glasses. Yeah. <laughs> 
I don't, I didn't do we this. We might have had a spare set. Maybe, yeah. maybe. Of course, like I said, the tortoise shell glasses were found at the scene. Mm-hmm. Bobby, of course, did not wear the glasses and his uncle told him that. Right. Um, so a search was done for the owner of those glasses. <sighs> Good luck with that. Okay. But this is where this case is gets interesting. Okay. All right. So well, This not- is where it starts to get interesting? <laughs> So this is where the, the the police catch a break. How about okay. that? So the tortoiseshell glasses, tortoiseshell glasses were quite common. It, this was, if you look in the 20s, this was kind of the style of glasses. They were, okay. I don't think there was any other style of glasses than right. round frames. So in the prescription was, it was a reading glasses prescription okay. and it was actually quite common. So again, we've got n- common tortoiseshell frames, common prescription. Mm-hmm. So you're thinking it's not, they're not going to find anything. However, there was one unusual aspect about the glasses. They had a distinctive, they had distinctive rivet hinges okay. with square corners. Okay. And this hinge was only made by Bobro Optical Company of Brooklyn, New York. Okay. And in Chicago, only one, um, place sold the bobro frames gotcha so that severely limited down exactly and in addition to that there was a faint diamond mark on the lenses that showed them to be from that from that particular store optician okay so it was definitely purchased in chicago it wasn't like somebody from another city or state or something purchased by almer cohen purchased from almer cohen company and so they go through 54,000 records at Almerco, Almerco and Company. God, that's very confusing. Almerco and Company. Um, and they find that only three people in the Chicago area have those frames. Wow. So they go from 54,000, well, from, in, from infinity right. to 54,000 to three. Okay. Yeah. The first person who has it is an attorney named Jerome Frank. He's got a solid alibi and I assume the glasses. A woman who was wearing the glasses when they went to speak to her. That was easy. Right. And a young ornithologist named Nathan Leopold. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. So, the police had actually already spoken to Leopold. This is, I, it's kind of a, one of those things where it's like, it feels like it should be like, it should have made him nervous, but it actually made him feel better. They spoke to him about four days after the murder on Sunday, May 25th. And they were speaking to anybody. The reason they were speaking to him is because they were talking to anybody who frequented the area. Right. Where the body was found. And of course, Nathan took ornithology classes out there all the time. Like he literally led classes there. Mm-hmm. So he was out there all, all the, the time. time. And he told them he'd, of course, been in the been there the weekend before both days. He went on Saturday with, with one group and on s- Sunday with, an, with another friend mm-hmm. to go hunting and stuff. Or not hunting, but, you know, to shoot birds for his collection, which is gross. I'm glad we have cameras now for that. Right. Ugh. So he was at the police station for about two hours. He wrote a statement. The police released him. They had no inclination that he was involved. He called Richard and said, we're good. Let's be cocky. Right. And that's basically what they were. They were just cocky. So Sounds like they were just cocky all the time anyway. Yeah, so. I think I'm going to say something later that I'm going to feel a little controversial about, but maybe not. Um, so... So they also didn't think he was involved when they went to question him about the glasses mm-hmm. on Thursday, May 29th, because obviously he could have dropped them at any time. Sure. This is We're not talking about a situation where this kid has only been there once. The right. kid is here, there all the time. This time, when the detectives came to the door, Nathan was a little bit irritated. He was preparing for one of his birding classes. He didn't have time to speak to the police. But the police come when they come. You can't stop it. Right. So they asked him if he wore glasses. He said, I do. 
They asked him if he lost them. He said, I have not lost them. They asked him if he had them. He said, no, but I'm sure they're around here someplace. Instead of, but instead of searching for the glasses, which seems like the next, the most natural next thing to do. Right. They go, okay, well, we need to take you down to talk to the state's attorney. Nathan was, of course, annoyed. And he mm-hmm. was like, I have a class in a half an hour. I don't, because they came about 2.30 and he had a class three. And they're like, I can't, can we postpone this? And they're like, no, we can't postpone it. So he called canceled the class mm-hmm. i mean like you do the police are there right. they want to talk to you the group of detectives take nathan they're all dressed in street clothes because the state's attorney does not want because he does not believe that nathan leopold has done is involved in this mm-hmm. this is this by the way is on thursday may 29th i'm not sure if i said that okay um he is not believed that nathan has anything to do with this he is convinced that this will all be free and clear in about two minutes right mm-hmm. like he'll they'll go down they answer questions this is just a formality just a formality right so so much so that instead of taking him to an actual like police station or down to the courthouse they go to a hotel to interview him hotel lasalle um where state attorney robert e crow thought nathan would be more comfortable and it would be less conspicuous sure because again nathan's not involved in this right he's from a good family yep so Crow speaks with Leopold, just trying to get a sense of why his glasses would be so close to the area where the body of Bobby was found. Uh, Nathan insists his glasses were at home in the pocket of one of his suits. And so Crow's like, well, this is this drives me crazy. So that Crow goes, okay, well, let's go back to your house and get the glasses. Why didn't the fuck didn't they just look for them? Right. It's now you're now you're just wasting gas. Mm-hmm. But that's very modern. I don't think then they cared about that. <laughs> so. So they all went back to Leopold's house and Nathan appeared to scour the house for, this, for his glasses. We know that he knows that they're his glasses. We yeah. know that he knows that this is not, you know, going to, this isn't ideal for him. But at the same time, he's like, whatever, they have nothing. I, I have a reason for my glasses to be there. Mm-hmm. So when the glasses are not found, Nathan concedes that they're probably his. He can, Nathan concedes they're probably his and that he probably dropped them when he tripped or fell or was existing mm-hmm. out there while doing birding. So the police kind of go, well, all right, you're probably right. Let's help. But do you want us to help you look for the glasses? This is, my, the, it's very unclear why the police start searching his house. Mm-hmm. But I think it's either, hey, can we search your room? Or, hey, can we search your room for your glasses? I don't really know. I think they're being helpful, though. Right. Because, again, at this point, I don't think... They still think that, that Mitchell, that Mott Mitchell or whatever his name is, Kurt Mott Mitchell, is the guy who did this. Right. So they, they do not think that Nathan's involved. Well, so, and But you also got to think about, like... If they can find his glasses, that means that somehow there's a fourth pair of glasses that they had no, un, that they didn't know about. And they definitely belong to the person who murdered the kid. Yeah. But then they have to go find who that person is that owns that fourth pair of glasses. If they can't find the glasses, like they thoroughly search his house and say, okay, dude, sorry, I guess we can't find your glasses. These must definitely be, be your glasses. Then they can rule it out as, out as evidence, you know, because obviously Nathan had nothing to do with it. obviously so they just they get to rule that out as as evidence and they can just call it a dead end and be done with it exactly okay so but again they start searching nathan's house sure and they find in his bedroom they find a 32 caliber repeater a gun that they had not expected to find (laughs) because nathan only told them about a shotgun right and also it wasn't it didn't have a permit so it's an illegal gun so we have a problem Mm -hmm. sir in addition They found a letter to Leopold's good friend, Richard Loeb, that contained some questionable, controversial... Sex pervert stuff. Information. Uh, In the letter, it appears the boys had had a fight, 
and Leopold wanted to remain friends. And I'm going to read this to you because I think it's a weird turn of phrase. Okay. And I kind of can't get it out of my head. Okay. And it's kind of famous also. So people will remember this. So if they stopped seeing each other, Nathan said, extreme care must be used. The motif of falling out of cocksuckers would sure be would be sure to be popular, which is patently undesi- patently undesirable and forms an unknown but unavoidable bond between us. Interesting. Falling out of cocksuckers. Mm-hmm. I looked it up to see if it was some sort of slang. Uh huh. It's not. It's just exactly what it says. Okay. Okay. So these two pieces of evidence of course, changed the way that Crow thinks of Nathan because now he's convinced that Nathan is a homosexual... Sex pervert. Sex pervert with an illegal handgun. Yeah. and He's an armed sex pervert. And the questioning was moved from the hotel... To the police to station? To the criminal court building. Okay. So, yes, basically. We're step in the right direction. Yeah. On the way, though, Crow says, why don't we pick up Richard Loeb? <laughs> so... During the Nathan's interrogation at the court building, Crow asks him to show him how he could have lost the glasses. Okay? Mm-hmm. So now we have now we have a show. So Nathan basically prat falls all over the place and fake trips and Oh, if only video cameras had been Oh, invented. that would be amazing. Um he he does everything he possibly can to to make these glasses fall out of his pocket. So they've put the glasses in the pocket. Mm-hmm. And he's falling all over the place and the glasses just He won't fall out of the pocket. So this is somehow, I mean, he doesn't, in a way, this is silly. Right. Because he doesn't know how his glasses fell out. So if he really isn't innocent, if Nathan Leopold had actually been an innocent man, Uh you can't put this to him. You can't hold this to him. Right. Because how the fuck does he know how he lost his glasses, Right. right? Like, so the only time the glasses fell out of his pocket is when he took off his jacket, laid it on the floor, and picked it back up by the hem. Okay. Okay. So again, but again, he could have taken off his jacket and forgotten he'd done that while he was out there birding. This mm-hmm. is not, this is all not proof. Right. This is circumstance. This is all circumstance. Yep. But this of course is not, they don't, I don't think they think he killed Bobby yet. I think they just think he's a pervert, mm-hmm. that he's having sex with his friend and they don't like that. And right. he's got a illegal gun. So they do have an actual reason to hold him at this mm-hmm. point because he does have an illegal gun. So, but it's also plausible that he left the glasses because they are there at the crime scene. So it is a possible, there's a chance. Again, we're circumstantial evidence here. Mm-hmm. They can't rule out that he's the killer. They're clearly his glasses. He's clearly hiding something. You know what this, like they don't say it, but you, because you, you, won't, you don't have any like any books by Crow going, that kid was shady as shit and I knew something was going on. Mm-hmm. Like you just have like the, the court documents and stuff where they're right. like being, you know, scientific about it. Not scientific, but you know what I mean? Like just not, they're not saying how they feel. They're just being very right bland about it. And so we don't know if Crow wasn't like, this kid killed this kid, killed Bobby. There's no way he didn't kill him. You know, like we don't know. Right. We just, we just can, we speculate, you know. E- extrapolate from, from the uh, documents. <laughs> So because they don't have, they have got some circumstantial evidence, but now they want to know what he was up to on Wednesday, May 21st. Right. Right? Like that's a natural next step is, well, we've got to prove you didn't do this. So tell us what you did on Wednesday. And he, he, this is Thursday the next week. So we're eight days off, Adrian. Right. So the threshold has been met. Threshold has been met. And so now it's time to forget. I I don't know what I was doing. I don't know what I was doing. And they're like, it was a week ago. 
and somebody died. Yeah. You don't remember what you did that day? And he's like, no, no, no. And they're like, come on, you've got to remember. And so slowly he starts to kind of come out with it. So he says, after classes, because he went to class that morning, and around 11, he picked Richard up, Richard Loeb, and he went to lunch at Marshall Fields Grill. They then grabbed a bottle of gin and went to Lincoln Park so Nathan could do some birding and they both could have some drinks. Mm -hmm. Nathan said that they, quote, might have been a little happy by the end of the day, but neither of us was drunk, unquote. However, since Richard's father was a teetotaler and disapproving of Richard's drinking, the boys went to dinner to get the alcohol smell off their breath. After dinner, they started cruising for a couple of girls with nothing to do, quote unquote, and found a couple. However, when the girls wouldn't, quote, come across, unquote, they dropped them off and went home. And then when he got home, he drove his aunt and uncle home. Sounds plausible. Sure. However, apparently there was some questioning. I don't, I think there's a speculation on one of the writer, one of my sources that they were like, that the police were like, but I thought he was, they were gay. Like, right. That doesn't mean that they don't go out with girls, right? You know, or try to have sex with girls. It just means that they fool around, mm -hmm. you know. But anyway, so they kind of take that as face value. They're going to ask Loeb about it. Sure. They're going to, you know, they're going to confirm. Some follow up. Yeah. Um. But what about this letter? Put this letter to to Loeb. Were they homosexual? No, 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 no. They're not homosexual, says Nathan. The letter had been a reference. They had had a fight, and a few years ago, there'd been a rumor that was going around that they were quote unquote cocksuckers mm. and he was just saying that people will talk and say that we broke up basically but it was none of that was true we were not we've never had any sexual relationship okay okay what about typewriters nathan got any typewriters yeah yeah, yeah. i've got a i've got a hammond multiplex he says woo woo. but no no others oh okay well let's go see if we can find that typewriter so they go back and they look for the typewriter and they find and that they're just wasting gas left and right here they really are they go back like four times and i'm like just search the house you guys just search it so they go back they find hand and typewritten pages handwritten pages mm -hmm. typewritten pages and take those for comparison right uh, they find the Hammond typewriter, but no Underwood. And they find, in the Willie's Night, they find some timetables for the trains. Okay? Mm -hmm. But that could be for anything. Right. Well, plus, at this point, I don't think... The, the cops don't even know about the train part no, of the plan. I th no, they don't. No. So... So, this is on Friday that this is all happening. At this point, Nathan has been in custody for 24 hours. He does not have a lawyer. He has not asked for a lawyer. His family has not brought him a lawyer he is without lawyer. Mm -hmm. Likewise, Loeb, without a lawyer, was now being interrogated, of course, at the Hotel LaSalle. Mm -hmm. because Gotta it, make him comfy. It's probably, if it's not Nathan, it's definitely not Richard. Right. But maybe it's Nathan, but probably not Richard, even though that's his alibi. Right. Um, and he was basically telling the same story as Leopold. Only one difference. He said the boys went home right after dinner. Mm. Nothing, no mention of the girls, which the police kind of flag. But also, I mean... Right there, you can kind of be like, oh, he's being... Discreet. Discreet, yeah. right? So a mutual friend of the of the guys gets word. I think he's I think he's yet another reporter. They're friends with, like, all the fucking reporters. So a mutual friend gets word that they're telling different stories. And him, thinking that they're not guilty, mm -hmm. like, goes to talk to Leopold and says, hey, dude, what's going on? Dickie's story is totally different from your story. Or he's just, you know, he's saying that you guys went home after dinner. And then Leopold's like, oh, you know what? You should go tell him. I've told them everything and it's okay. They can, he can tell them about the girls. Hmm. Just like kind of right. like going with that. He's just being discreet right. kind of a thing. So the friend goes to talk to Dickie and he's like, hey man, like Leopold says, 
he's got a message for you and Dickie's like what's the message and he's like he says you can tell him about the girls that it's not a big deal and he's like oh okay so then Richard goes yeah we picked up a couple of girls and when they wouldn't put out we'd basically drop mm-hmm. them off and so then their stories match up and the police are like oh okay but Crow the state's attorney is absolutely convinced that he's headed in the right direction it appears, after after comparing them, it appears that Leopold's handwriting matches the writing on the, on the envelope mm-hmm. and that the typed stuff was typed on the same typewriter as the right. ransom the, note. From the Underwood. From the Underwood. So they can't, but they can't find the Underwood at the house. Right. They're like, they go back to look for it. They scour the house. They talk to everybody. No one can remember anybody ever having this Underwood typewriter except the maid. The maid remembers that there was an Underwood typewriter in the house. And they're like, when was it there? And she was like, two weeks ago. At least two weeks ago, I saw this thing. But now it appears it's no longer there. So they question Leopold, still with no lawyer. And he said he never had a second typewriter. But, and if the maid had seen one, it was probably brought by one of the boys in his, his legal study group. Hmm. So what do they do? They bring in the boys from the study group. Ask them, ask which one has the Underwood. And they, but this is the thing. They question the boys in front of Leopold. <laughs> like Leopold's in the room mm-hmm. and they're like, do you have an Underwood typewriter? And these kids are like, no. And then Leopold would ask a question. Like Leopold was asking these kids questions and they're like, no, I never had an Underwood typewriter. I just only ever saw you use it. And <laughs> Leopold's like, I feel like you brought it in. And they're like, no. So they all like totally deny and after this super creepy questioning where you know he was like staring them down and being weird and like okay guys you know it's your typewriter and they were like it's not my fucking typewriter you weirdo you know stop staring at me swan (laughs) so so after they basically catch him in this total untruth that he decides oh maybe it's from my other friend leon mandel who they had been working on translating an Italian pornographic novel. Nice. Um, But that friend hadn't been in town since April 30th. He got married and was on vacation in Europe. So there was like no way that he could have gotten it out of the house within the last two weeks. Right. And so there's nothing there. And so they're like, Leopold, we know it's your typewriter. Where is it? Where is it? Yeah. And he's like, nope, it's not my typewriter. So the family... Leopold's family, still not sending him a fucking lawyer, is suddenly struck with, and they don't, they haven't spoken to him, okay? Mm-hmm. So now the family suddenly gets good news. Sven England, the chauffeur, says, there is no way those boys could have committed the crime. I was working on the brakes on Nathan's car all afternoon. Oh, this is where their alibi falls apart. Nathan could not possibly have committed the crime if he didn't have his car. The family was thrilled. And because they did not send him a lawyer or talk to him while he was in custody, they didn't know he had an alibi. So they send Sven to the police station to tell them there's no way these boys could have done it because, you know, they didn't have Nathan's car that day. They had a different car. Or they, did, they didn't have Nathan's car that day. So instead of helping Nathan, it destroys their alibis. Mm-hmm. And the police fucking pumped. <laughs> They're like, oh, really? Okay. So they decide not to confront Nathan with this information. They decide to confront Richard. We're like into the, we're talking... In the wee hours of Saturday morning at this point, okay? So these boys have been in, well, Richard's only been in for about 
24 hours, Mm -hmm. but Nathan's been in for about 36. So at first, Richard does not buy that Sven England has destroyed their alibi. He's like, he's got to be, he's mistaken. He's, he's, he's probably not lying, but he's definitely mistaken. It wasn't that day. You know, he was using this, like the kind of stuff that you probably could, but unfortunately Sven England, well, unfortunately, fortunately for the world, unfortunately for Leopold and Loeb, Sven England remembered that day specifically because he had to go get medication for his daughter and the medication had the date on which he bought it. So they knew for sure what day it was. So Richard says, no, he's mistaken. And the police are like, I don't think so. And (laughs) he sits around and they've kind of told him, we know that your alibi is crap. And he's sitting around and he's like, my God. And he looks at the police and he says, he told you that? And they say, yep. And he goes, shit. And at beginning at 1.40 a.m. on Saturday, May 31st, one week and three days after the murder, Richard Loeb, without a fucking lawyer, begins to tell Robert Crowe and a handful of other detectives the real story of what happened Just on May 21st. starts motor-mouthing. Yep. So, totally got away with it, you guys. <laughs> but also, I want you to remember something. Loeb, part of Loeb's fantasy was getting caught. Right. So I wonder if this wasn't exciting for him. Oh, sure. He gets to talk about what happened. He gets to get punished for what happened. This is very, like, on par with what Richard wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wonder a little bit. No, I'm going to bring it up in a second. I'm going to wait. So after Loeb's confession, of course, um, Crow confronts Leopold because he's going to, he got to knock him down a peg, yep. right? So he, obviously Leopold's feeling a bit Just cocky. give him enough rope to hang himself. Yeah, just yeah. enough. So they'd held him now, they'd held Leopold for, you know, about 36 plus hours. And we're talking like four o'clock in the morning at this point. So right. he's been, he, I think he slept, but he hasn't slept much. And uh, so he taunts, so Leopold's taunting Crow, saying they don't have sufficient evidence, that they can't take it to trial, like whatever the, he, they're saying is bull. Like he's he's full of it. There's mm-hmm. you've got nothing. And Crow stops him and he says, "What about the rental car? How you did to make up? How about how you make up false identity? Ooh. What about how you guys ate hot dogs and root beer after you killed Bobby?" And he says, "Loeb told us everything, including that you're the one who killed Bobby." And of course, Nathan just, "Oh, Richard told you." Well, if Dickie's talking, I'm talking too. <laughs> and so he starts, he's, he, so Nathan goes, all right, let's talk. And then Crow has to stop him. He has to say, why don't you wait until the, till we get the guy here to, to take the notes, <laughs> the court transcriber right. or whatever. We don't have, we don't have a stenographer right now. You need to <laughs> shut up. So, but when he gets there, Nathan basically confirms everything that also, Richard says. Huh? Why, why would you go interv- interrogate a dude without a, somebody because to take I notes? Think, I don't think Crow expected Leopold to go, oh, well, if Dickie's talking, I'm in. I'm all for it. Like, it's th- these two are not normal criminals. No. And also kids. And yeah. I don't think it's... Th- you don't really know how a young person is going to react, mm-hmm. as, you know. So, basically, Nathan confirmed everything Loeb said, except, of course... That he didn't kill Bobby, Richard killed Bobby. So this is the contention right. of the whole thing: is that they will not admit who I will, actually I will killed. I corroborate him. literally everything he said, except for the fact that I killed him because he killed him. See, this is one of the things that, like, not it. This is essentially, I think, why Richard wanted them both to hold this. Yeah, each so end. that they were bo- both culpable. Yeah, yeah, and now it's you know, oh, 
Nathan did it. No, Richard did it. No, Nathan did it. No, Richard did it. And this is a thing that, that like they get re-interviewed and they correct each other's like they they go back and forth correcting each other's statements. No, now he said that I did that I killed him, but he killed him. Like they they're like, oh yeah, that's how it happened. Except I didn't kill him. He killed him. And they're like, how could I have killed him? Because I was in the backseat. It makes more sense for me to be in the backseat. It makes less sense for you to be. Why would he get in the car with me if he didn't know you? And da, 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 how why would he get in the car with you if he didn't know me? Or if he didn't know you, he knew me. And like, I've looked at these cars. You can see the person in the backseat better than you can see the person in the front seat, uh-huh. to be honest. Like, Bobby got in the car because he saw you, Richard. Richard right. killed him. That's, I'm on that, that Richard killed him. But maybe Nathan killed him. I don't fucking know. So anyway, that's how kind of that first day, like, went. They, they just kind of went back and forth. Like, they were sitting in a room arguing about, or not arguing, but just respectfully disagreeing with the other's way of, the other's confession. Right. Which is just hilarious to me. They're like, no, no, no. I didn't kill him. He killed him. No, 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 no. I didn't kill him. He killed him. It's just so funny. So anyway, later that Saturday. So they give, they, I don't even think they've allowed them to sleep yet this night. So they've gone from confessions to probably breakfast to now they're going to retrace the steps of the crime still without fucking lawyer. So that drives me insane. They just they're like, whatever. They're the richest kids in town right. and, they, and their parents have not gotten them a lawyer yet. Right. So. They go, they, the police take them to retrace the steps of the crime and to also recover more evidence. Okay. So they stop at the rental car shop. Mm-hmm. They, and then the lunchroom where Richard called to give Nathan a, a reference. Mm-hmm. They go to the hardware store where Richard purchased the rope and the chisel, the weird chisel. Um, the drugstore where, where Nathan bought the acid. They went to Nathan's house to get the hip boots that he wore to jump the, to shove the body in the thing and to the lagoon where they threw the typewriter and they make one final stop to retrieve the partially burned automobile blanket to recover Bobby's shoes and his belt buckle and his clasp pin. They take, they do all yeah. this and they're like, it's fine. It's totally fine. We're not, we don't have lawyers. They're this is fine. Probably bragging about it the whole time too. Well, and this is the thing they keep saying is that while they were doing this, the police were questioning them. They were saying, did he have to die? Yeah, of course he had to die. Why did he have to die? Well, because he recognized us. Like, it's no remorse. Right. Not a single, not, not one iota of remorse from either of these guys from day one. Like, they are never really going to be remorseful of this. Right. Um, when the press and the public found out about who killed Bobby, and they found out why, that it was literally no reason that it was a thrill kill, they were crazy. I bet, yeah. And they were demanding blood, of course. With such callous motivations and no remorse, it was clear this would be a hanging case. Crow was certainly gunning for it. It was with this in mind, the idea that this was going to be a capital punishment case, that Jacob Loeb, Richard's uncle, because his father had actually been recovering from a heart attack when all of this happened, okay. finally got him a lawyer. went to the renowned anti-death penalty lawyer Clarence Darrow not to get the boys off, but to save their lives. And this is what I think. I think a little bit. They knew these boys did this, and they didn't send them. They didn't send them a lawyer because they almost wanted them to hang themselves. Uh-huh. I, I, I think that Richard and Nathan sucked as people. Yeah. And their families they sound like it. And their families were like. I mean, aside from all of the, you know murdering and getting cocky about murdering thing yeah they were like they seemed like pretty difficult arrogant Mm -hmm. shitty kids that maybe the parents were like maybe they need a couple of days in the police station and then they found out they actually killed the kid and they were like maybe they need a couple of years in prison yeah like it was like they almost like a let's maybe if they're in there we won't have to deal with them anymore you know um so back to this leopold and Loeb arguing about who did this thing okay they were really pissed at each other for a while oh i'm like, sure like 
a couple of days. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, okay. It's not really what I was thinking. No. I think that's like friendship and ending levels of... Oh, you would think. But with Leopold and Loeb, it was basically... Leopold was kind of... It was a lover spat. Yeah, it was almost a lover spat. So Leopold was like way more bad at Loeb than Loeb was at Leopold. And I think that that has more to do with it. Like Loeb was like, listen, babe, let's not have a fight anymore. We got to deal with this. We got to be a united front. And then Leopold was like, you're right, Dickie. <laughs> Whatever you say, Dickie. Like it's, it feels like it was like, we got into this together. Let's just stick together. But still, neither of them would admit who did, who did the killing. Like right. they still blame the other one. Right. But it was just like, oh no, he did it. No, no, he did it. Like that literally for the rest of, of this time, they're just going to be like, oh no, no, he did it. No, no, he did it. No, no, he did it. So... Uh, but this was probably good that they were on a united front since their lives are at stake. Mm-hmm. So the trial is not really a trial. Okay. So Clarence Darrow, who many of our listeners might know, he was, he did the uh, Scopes Monkey trial. Okay. Uh, he, That's where I know that yes, name from. He was, he, this is a, he did the Scopes Monkey trial was like a year after the Leopold and Loeb trial. Okay. But he was already kind of famous even before Leopold and Loeb. He was a very prominent um defense attorney when it came to um de- uh representing unions okay and you know because back then in the early 1900s unions were very unpopular right um and were doing some terrorist terrorist kinds of things I mean, but also the companies they worked for were doing kind of terrorist things too to try to mm-hmm. get them into trouble right so he would represent people who were not guilty if he could and if he felt like somebody was guilty in that, those cases like if somebody killed someone and they were like no they're trying to frame me he would just plead him out he wouldn't right. you know defend him to the to the death um but he was also very very anti-capital punishment and so he would represent people to try to get them not look your honor my client is guilty as sin but don't kill him. But it was it was basically it was back in so he thought that poor people didn't get the same kind of representation as rich people. So he would often represent people who couldn't afford right and afford a good lawyer. And he would he would talk about the fact that he very much believed that being a criminal was inherent. It's very, very back in the back in the early 1900s. There was this idea that like you couldn't control your your life. Mm-hmm. You had no free will. A lot of people there yeah. are still people who think that. Yeah, but. There was definitely this sense of like, oh, if you are committing crime, it has to do with your upbringing. It has to do with your genes. It has to do with who you are inherently. You can't change that. Right. Which is patently untrue. Right. But at the time, that was a good defense. A, de- a good defense. So mm-hmm. he could go into to trials and say, you know, this person was always going to do this and they couldn't help it. Why should we kill them for it, essentially? And so a lot of, so he would represent people who... He just didn't want people to die. Um, right. And also, he hated capital punishment because sometimes innocent people get killed. It's all the same reasons that people hate capital punishment today. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the sometimes the government kills the wrong people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the person is mentally disabled and cannot and should not be murdered. You know, that sort of thing. So this is the guy they've chosen to represent the boys. And immediately they think that they're he thinks that they should do not guilty by reason of insanity so he sends the guys all to all these shrinks and what they find out is that they are not insane leopold in particular does not want to be considered insane he he very much feels very sane Mm -hmm. and he does not appreciate this idea that they're going to call him crazy right um so very quickly they realize that they cannot plead them not guilty by reason of insanity because their clients aren't insane by any stretch of the imagination. Right. However, Daryl believes that if he pleads them guilty, 
And then they do a sentencing that a sentencing hearing that is essentially mitigating circumstances, which were already a thing that people were doing, mm-hmm. but not to this extent. So he's going to bring in to at their at. So this is what happens. He pleads them guilty. And he says, we're going to bring in psychologists to talk to the to you, judge, and ask you to please not kill these boys. That's essentially all it is. They've got, a, they're weird. They've had weird upbringings. They were molested. They were abused, things like that. Mm-hmm. We're going to bring all that stuff up. We're going to talk about how they're, they understand right from wrong, but they also think that the, they're above the law in some way, da, 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 da. They are not, we, don't, we are not saying they're insane. We are saying they have a mental defect. So this is guilty but don't kill him by reason of mental defect essentially gotcha so crow is like no this is bullshit he thinks that they're trying an insanity case on that side so they're both like this is like big like the opposite sides of the coin arguing each other right this is what the what the what the hearing becomes because it's not a trial it's a hearing Mm -hmm. and what it ends up being is just a bunch of a bunch of bloviating dickheads who don't who patently disagree with each other Mm -hmm. to an extent that like it doesn't matter they're just bloviating their asses off they've got They've got experts on both sides. It's I'm not going to talk about the trial much more than this because all it is is bullshit. It's a month, month, a month for a sentencing hearing because they they all need to be right. Right. And it's not at all about Leopold and Loeb or the crime they committed. It's about philosophical differences on, on either side of the courtroom. Exactly. Yeah. Basically, that's what it is. And it's masquerading as, oh, these boys are, are not normal. Right. Well, no, they're not. They fucking killed somebody. Yeah. That's, norm- that's, that's not, not normal. normal. So... Um, and it's also boring bullshit. Mm-hmm. It's all, it's, it's just ridiculous. So I'm not going to get into it. If you want to read about it, it's one of the most like lauded trials because of the arguments and stuff. And it is a great, it's an excellent, I mean, probably an excellent case study on how to argue against the death penalty. Right. But at this probably, probably used as precedent still. Probably. I mean, I would assume so. But I don't but think what that, do I know? Uh, personally, I don't think that we would have, we would be talking about the trial because the trial is like the big thing about this case that people want to talk about. And I'm mm-hmm. like, let's talk about the fucking weird kids who were, one of them was a Nietzschean and the other one was socio, so sociopathic that people still question whether or not he w- was the good or bad one. Right. You know, like it's it just... This is way more interesting than the trial was because at the end of all things, the judge didn't give a shit what they said. He was a month of trial. He sentenced them to life plus 99 years because of their ages. It had nothing to do with any of their bullshit. He right. was just like, they're too young to die on the gallows, which is what it comes down to. Right. So they got life for the murder, 99 years for the kidnapping. Okay. Mm-hmm. And later on, Leopold is going to write a book called Life Plus 99 Years. I looked for it. I really wanted to read it. I thought it would be amazing to... I love reading books written by these fucking assholes because mm-hmm. they're never good, but they're always hilarious. But also, Leopold's pretty smart, so it was probably quite yeah. well written. Now, he also suggested, the, the judge mm-hmm. suggested, that maybe they don't get out. Maybe we don't ever give them parole because right. this is a time before um, life without parole. There was no such thing as that until much more recent, the later half of the 20th century. Okay. Um, so he just recommended they never get paroled. Okay. Which makes sense. There's a bit of a question there mm-hmm. whether or not these two will, they really don't have remorse. They're laughing. Mm-hmm. They're having a great time at the trial. Like a lot of the pictures you see that you've seen mm-hmm. already are, they're like laughing. They're smiling. They look like cocky dicks. Like it's just fuck those kids, you right. know? Um, which is a lot of the reason why people were pissed yeah. that the judge oh, did I'm, this. Like yeah. they were like, 
those boys sh- if those boys don't die who dies right you can't kill anybody now if you don't kill the kids who killed the kid yeah you know but it's you know again we're talking they're not totally kids but they are kids mm-hmm. but there was you know again if you read these books they talk about some case studies where boys about the same age were killed were, were hung that were poorer and could have used a bit of darrow but didn't mm-hmm. get darrow you know like and a lot of people are like why is clarence darrow working for these families what's going on there like he's usually the champion of the poor and here he is you know working for this fancy rich family and it's just like well he really believed in the death in he was very anti-death penalty mm-hmm. and did not approve of this and it was a high profile high enough profile case that it could get his name in the paper mm-hmm. that's really all it was and mm-hmm. that's why <sighs> he bloviates his ass off during it so mm-hmm. Anyway, so the Franks were happy with this because, as Jacob told reporters, there can be no appeal. There will be no more torture by seeing these things spread across the front pages of the newspapers. It will be easier for Mrs. Franks and for me to be relieved of the terrible strain of all this publicity. Mm -hmm. He is like 67 years old. He dies like three years later. Right. Like, this is not a man who is enjoying all the publicity from his child dying. Right. He's done with it and Mm -hmm. he's glad to be over. And I think this is probably what happens to a lot of these families in these high profile cases. Is that you go from obscurity to fame for no fucking reason other than that your family member dies mm-hmm. and that's terrible yeah it's a you constant just, reminder yeah, yeah you want you want to go to bed and sleep for days i bet you want to just be able to go take your dog for a walk yeah 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 please reporters leave me alone i just want to walk my dog around the block thank you very much so leopold and Loeb go to jail right mm-hmm. uh they're carted to joliet prison in joliet illinois to begin their lives behind bars they were put in different wings of the prison and in in 1925, Nathan was actually moved to a different prison called Stateville or Stateville. In 1931, Richard was also moved to Stateville. And then they got to be basically living at the same prison and became friends again. Uh, They thrived there for a time with Nathan working in the clerical department of the prison. And they worked together to start a correspondence school at the prison. So they used their time a little bit wisely at the time. They were still pretty young at this time, too. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, stories of Loeb bucking the system have survived. In Simon Batts, for the thrill of it, he says Richard kept a permanent deposit of $500 in the prison office that he received from his brothers like every time it got low, Mm -hmm. um, as well as a $50 deposit from his parents for, um, what do they call it? Commissary? For the commissary. Thank you, Adrian. You're welcome. So... Um, and he used that money to bribe the guards for special privileges. Um, I believe that this happened. Mm-hmm. This is rich boys. Yeah. I believe this happened. Yeah. It's likely that this is true. Um, at least that he was bribing the guards. Although how much he was receiving, $500 seems a bit high yeah. to be keeping in the office mm-hmm. of the prison. I feel like people would be skimming off the top, but maybe that was the point. Yeah. I don't know. Um, no matter how much money he was getting, he and Leopold kept themselves well stocked of cigarettes, candy, food, and other commissary items. I, I literally have commissary in here, and I forgot the word. So, and they shared the wealth among their friends and their cellmates. Uh, one of these friends was a man called James Day, uh, who may or may not have been subject to a quid pro quo by Loeb, goodies and money for sex. Mm. Um, the two also may, there's, there's kind of some speculation as to why, because they had some issues with each other. It's hard to say if they were... That was the quid pro quo problem, or if they argued over Day not getting as much as others, or if Day was trying to have sex with Loeb and Loeb didn't want to have sex Day, or if there was a prison break that they had planned that Loeb was holding over the guy's head. Like, it just feels very, there's so many different stories that have been told by Day Mm -hmm. that it's hard to know what's true. It seems 
I don't know. I don't know. I Without knowing more about Loeb, which we don't really know a lot about Loeb because he didn't write a book or right. talk to press all the time. Um, it's hard to say what kind of a person, if he was actually physically, but if he was really into sex. But from what we do know, he wasn't really that into sex. Right. So I don't know that the, the sex stuff is true. Maybe he was, it was, I don't know. I think it's possible that this guy just didn't like Loeb. They'd had an, a fight. It's prison. People don't get on sometimes. They have fights over petty things or big things or whatever. Okay, but what, what did he do? So, this is what happened. Okay. On January 28th, 1936, the day started out as many others did. Dickie and Babe were eating commissary muffins in their cells with their cellmates. Mm-hmm. Um, and they then they headed off to grade papers at the school. Uh, they had lunch either in their office or they quickly went to the lunchroom and went back to do more papers. And then Dickie went off to take a shower because he took showers at noon every day or something like that. Okay. A few minutes later, Day would go into the bathroom as well. So James Day went into the bathroom as well. Armed with a straight razor he'd gotten from his cellmate. When Richard came out a few moments later, he was covered in blood and collapsed under the first person that he saw. Day came out and handed the straight razor to the first penitentiary guard he saw. And Richard was rushed to the hospital. They found that he'd been slashed 56 times in the neck and in the abdomen. Wow. Yeah. So Nathan rushes to the hospital wing to essentially watch his friend be operated on and die. And Richard dies during surgery because he'd lost way too much blood. Mm-hmm. He's, I mean, 56 slash wounds. That's not great. Right. Um, and... Everybody leaves, but Nathan and the surgical nurse stay and wash Richard's body. And basically, it broke Nathan's heart. He speaks about it in Life Plus 99 Years, saying, quote, We covered him at last with a sheet, but after a moment, I folded the sheet back from his face and sat down on a stool by the table where he lay. I wanted a long last look at him. For strange as it may sound, he had been my best pal. Which is sweet if it, they didn't kill a kid. Right. <laughs> but they killed the kid, so... So to drown out his pain, because he's just lost probably the love of his life, Mm -hmm. um, Nathan threw himself into school, and then he started working as an x-ray technician. In September 1944, over... Okay, so you probably know about this because you were a Marine, and you've probably heard this idea that... Or this thing where the guys who were still over in Japan were dealing with malaria. Mm -hmm. Way more than they were dealing with weapons at that point, because this Mm -hmm. is after the war or, you know, at the very end of the war. Right. Um... So they, what the government did was they went to the prisons and they asked any prisoner who was willing to basically test out malaria drugs. And Leopold was like, I'll get on that shit. Mm -hmm. So he contracted malaria and took some of these drugs. um, And while it did get rid of the symptoms, it was toxic enough that it just destroyed his system so he who he had actually been quite healthy Mm -hmm. he was about 40 years old he had kidney disease after this and diabetes after this fun yeah so but the benefit to it was that now he may or may not be eligible for early release Mm -hmm. so there's this you know like hey you've done this thing it's for your country we might be giving you an early release date so Leopold decided to start applying for clemency because of that. Hey, I participated in this malaria study. Hey, I've been a basically a nurse in the medical unit. Hey, I'm, you know, I started a school. Hey, I'm a pretty good guy. Da 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 da. You guys should let me out, or at least you know look re- look at my sentence again. Mm-hmm. So, 
he was not actually eligible for parole until 1957, mm-hmm. but he did receive a clemency trial or a, cle- a clemency resentencing, okay. essentially. So um, the judge knocked his sentence from plus 99 years to plus 85 years. And that made him eligible for parole four years earlier than what he would have. So that's not much, but it's four years. Right. I mean, like, that's a lot of time, yeah. right? So he went to apply for parole. He went in to talk to the people and he just wasn't quite prepared enough for it. So he didn't have a place to live. He didn't have a place to work. He didn't seem remorseful enough. He was still blaming Dickie for the murder. Very much a like first standard first parole hearing in my opinion like you don't really know what to expect so you just go in blind hoping that you'll convince them so he basically changed tack uh he found potential employment so basically he contacted people who he who still supported him on the outside and asked them to see if they could find him some work right um tried to find a place to live he found a place to live he was gonna he asked if he could go to puerto rico so he would be going to puerto rico uh he found a good attorney to actually plead his case uh he brought in witnesses he brought in you know like everybody he could possibly bring in who hasn't had ever had anything nice to say about him who was willing to talk so, so basically he went from ill prepared to fully prepared yeah, like super prepared so um finally and also finally he finally expressed remorse but not in, I mean, in the way, only way that he could possibly express remorse, which was like, yes, I take full responsibility for this. We were both, we both killed Bobby. So mm-hmm. he's still you know, like, they're like, do you blame Dickie? And he's like, well, I don't want to denigrate a dead man, essentially. So yes, right. I still, I still blame him, but also I'm fully responsible for it too. And they were like, mm, I don't know about this guy, you know, but <laughs> right. it's also 30 plus years since he's gone in, 33, 34 years since he's mm-hmm. gone in. So, because this was five years after the first time that he applied for parole. He didn't get parole again, uh, didn't get up for parole again until 1958. Okay. So, but on February 8th, February 8th, 1958, they did grant him parole. And he went to San Juan Taneo. <laughs> and he was released on march 13th uh the next day he flew to san juan not quite san juan i can't even say it (laughs) i hate you right now um so he went to puerto rico and he was working and he worked as a medical assistant at the village hospital in castaner or castaner okay um he remained there getting married in, in 1961 In 1963, five years after he was released, he was released from parole. Okay. Now, Mike DiPolito still has 14 years of parole left for low-level fraud. Yeah. But, you know, Nathan Leopold killed a little boy, and he got off in five years. Right. So I'm just... Seriously, Mike, get a lawyer. <laughs> it's getting ridiculous. And so he and his wife lived in Puerto Rico, occasionally traveling the world, occasionally going back to Chicago, which I feel like people yeah, did move. not like bad that. Move. Yeah. Bad move. Until his death from a heart attack on August 29th, 1971. Wow. Did not expect that. That he would get out of prison? Yeah. 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 I figured this was going to end with either one or both of them getting murdered in jail. I'm and, surprised. And, the, and if anyone survived, it was like they lived all of the rest of their years in a dark, lonely cell. <laughs> um, I'm surprised that Leopold wasn't the one who got killed in prison. He strikes me as the kind of person that a oh, yeah. prisoner would be like, I'm going to fucking kill him. <laughs> but maybe he kept to himself. I don't know. Maybe. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the um real quick i wanted to go down the list of of creative endeavors that people have done based on the leopold and Loeb case because it's actually quite extensive yeah well yeah. not super extensive but just an, but enough so yeah. there's rope 
Um, there, it's a, it's both a play and Hitchcock made a film. Okay. And the film that Hitchcock made was starred Jimmy Stewart, which I very much want to see. And it's based kind of loosely on it, on the case. Um, I, I, what I know about it is that there's a dinner party and there's Nietzschean theory and or Nietzschean theory and very much a murder that happened based on the Nietzschean theory and stuff like that. People really focus on the Nietzschean thing. Gotcha. What I don't know that that was as big of a deal as what people think it was, but that's what was reported. So that's what people got focused on. Meyer Levin wrote a book called Compulsion. Okay. Compulsion was made into a movie starring Orson Welles as Clarence Darrow um, and Dean Stockwell as the Leopold character. Do you know who Dean Stockwell is? Nope. Um, you do, but I can't think of his name. Um, we're talking about the guy who helped uh, Quantum Leap. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, and also it stars Bradford Dillman, who you only know, we know him now, Adrian, because we've been watching Murder, She Wrote. He's one of those guys who's just on all the Murder, She Wrote episodes. He always plays a different guy. Okay. I'll show you a picture of him later. So, But Meyer Levin, I feel like, has, has written other things. Meyer Levin actually knew the boys. Okay. And he was sued by Leopold for the for the story. It's based on the court case in particular. So um, there's a play called Nothing But the Night by James Yaffe. Uh, Swoon, which was a movie in the early 90s. Uh, we talked about Murder by Numbers last time that stars Ryan Gosling and Michael Pitt, essentially as Loeb and Leopold. Um, and of course, Sandra Bullock is the cop who mm-hmm. busts them, but not based on Crow or anything. So I don't know that that it's very loosely based. Right. Uh, there's a play called Never the Sinner I've never heard of, um, but I'm sure it's great. Um, and Thrill Me, the Leopold and Loeb story, which I believe is pretty lauded yeah and it is i'm pretty sure like a celebration of the homosexual relationship of theirs but i don't know for sure i haven't seen it um those are the ones that i know about there's There's probably many 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 more so that is that so yeah it's a shame you couldn't find the 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 book life plus 99 years i there is like a copy on amazon for like a thousand dollars or something but (sighs) you know not gonna buy a book by a by a murderer for that much money right um i'll probably find it someday yeah it just would be interesting to see what he had to say about things from his own perspective i guess it would be very interesting um i mean you take it with a grain of salt but well a lot of what we know clearly a lot of what we know is what they told what leopold said because there's so much information out there about leopold because he because he did interviews because Mm -hmm. he wrote a book because he was a uh out in the public basically being like hey i and also, he was a talkative guy. I mm-hmm. think he did what he was pretty proud of what they did. And even though he was like Dicky, shut up. He was like, listen, it's done, and I already got convicted of it. I might mm-hmm. as well talk about it. Right. But so that I think that's why we know so much is because he wrote a book about it, and they pulled a lot from it. The actual there's the whole thing about after Richard died is very beautiful. But I I mean, there's like a whole two pages in the book that I read mm-hmm. about it. But I didn't real I don't really feel like feeling bad for him. Right. He lost his best friend, sure, but you well, also maybe if they hadn't murdered that kid, yeah. he wouldn't have lost his best friend. Maybe if you hadn't murdered that kid, you could have just like lived your life being buddies forever mm-hmm. and being weird rich kids. Yeah. Forever. Well that was one of the things that they asked Leopold about at his parole hearing is if he'd have more sexual relationships with guys. And it's like, who cares? It's an They did, apparently. I, I guess I we live in a very modern world mm-hmm. and I and I'm very much not at all 
it's none of my business. Right. And I don't care anyway. But it's so weird to me that there was a time when people really worried about what other people were doing in their bedroom mm-hmm. or in their lives. And it's just like, it has nothing to do with you. Right. But, and that's, a, it's so funny because the only, I think one of the main reasons this case is so huge is because of the homosexual element to it. Mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, obviously it's the rich part of it too. And the Clarence Darrow being attached mm-hmm. and there's so much money and it's Chicago and whatever, but it's just, I think that people get really intrigued by stupid shit. Like I do, I do. I definitely do. Like I get intrigued by stupid shit. I, why we're talking about this case? Cause I'm intrigued by stupid shit. We're all, I think it's human nature to be drawn to some salacious shit. Yeah. So when something like that happens and it's just like, <gasps> yeah. it's scandalous. Tell me more. Yeah. It's, it, it's so funny cause it's, it is scandalous, but it's not that scandalous. Right. Like, but if I mean, any, it was scandalous at the time, if there's any, but if there's sex involved in anything, like yeah. people will be like, that person may have been a whore. And they're like, oh, we need to watch the, sh- we need to watch, you know, and know everything know about everything, it and read yeah. everything about it. And I'm, I'm that way. So I, I'm not really judging. I just right. think it's so funny that we as a, as, as human beings, people talk a lot about why true crime now. Mm-hmm. You know, whoa, everyone's obsessed with true crime now. We've always been obsessed with true crime. Mm-hmm. True crime is so 100% the, it's, it's too intriguing not to be into it. You know, right. people have been crowding into, into uh, courtrooms since there's been courtrooms. Right. Well, like, I mean, even before then, like, you know. Public hangings. Yeah, you had yeah. beheadings and stuff, and there'd be like clowns to entertain everybody yeah. until, until it was time for the, for the main show, yeah. for the main event. Yeah, it's we as people, it's human nature to be intrigued by crazy. Mm-hmm. And I think that when people murder, that's crazy. Yeah. And you, especially when you don't understand it, when you're not the kind of person who would kill somebody. Mm-hmm. Or maybe sometimes, maybe that's the reason that people are drawn in by it. Because it's so, like, if, if you kill your husband because he's having an affair, maybe you could see yourself killing your husband because he's having an affair. Mm-hmm. And you go, oh man, I want to know more about that. Mm-hmm. What was, what else, was there something wrong with their life beyond that? Was there something wrong? with her beyond that that kind of thing so mm-hmm. i just i've always thought the leopold and love case is, is interesting because because of that because the idea of of there's there they were kids mm-hmm. they were so young yeah they were be, they were smarter than most people but they were so young they were 18 and 19 years old when this happened this mm-hmm. wasn't this was not sophisticated older people this was teenagers mm-hmm. who really really thought that they could get away they with could it. get away with it yeah. and that it would be interesting and fun and ooh. I don't know what else. Right. And so it's, it's scary and it's scary. And it's, what's even weirder is that there seemed to be no personality there behind it. Like Leopold isn't interesting. Nothing he did as an older person was interesting. Right. He's He's just some guy that worked in a hospital. Yeah. He, what, he wasn't, out there or crazy or you know screaming about this or making weird comments to people he just went on to be an i don't want to say normal but boring Mm -hmm. person like would he have done anything if he had fallen in love with someone else would he have done whatever they wanted would he would he have been better off falling in love with a kid who with another kid who like really wanted to join the marine corps and then all of a sudden he's just in the marines yeah like it's one of those things where it's like if he had fallen in love with a different boy how would have like well he just imprinted on whoever he loved right like he just, i mean in theory yeah so i don't know i don't know how boring Loeb was because we don't know yeah Clearly not that boring because he annoyed the shit out of somebody and he stabbed him 57 yeah, times. It's hard to talk about that. Well, it's hard to know what happened there because yeah. it's either he was, you know, manipulating this guy, you know, blackmailing this guy into having sex with them, or he was, you know, the guy didn't like him for some other weird reason. But and the guy changes. Oh, but what's not to like? But you know, it's a it's criminals on criminals, right? Yeah. And this guy was not a likable person either. So right. it's one of those like, 
who do you, I mean, I guess you, who do you believe? Leopold, who kind of lived, who lived after and could go, Loeb was not trying to get sex from this guy. Or do you believe the guy who changed the story a thousand times? You know, just probably you believe that it probably wasn't sexual. Right. Or it just doesn't strike, ah, whatever. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But that is Leopold and Loeb. And I'm, I've really enjoyed the series and I hope you have, honey. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I hope you guys have. Uh, it's been great. And I hope that I can do as good of a job on the next one as I did on this one. I really like this one. And I've left so much out. So if you guys want to learn more, please go back and read some of these books that I've been reading. They're so intriguing. They talk about the 20s and they talk about the crime. And they're really like, um, for the thrill of it, really gets into um, the psychology they talk about every single psychologist and what every single psychologist was doing and it's not just psychology they there were so many weird sciences back then that people pulled out and like they put like weird things on the boys to like determine their like their metabolism and like their like their heart not their heartbeat but like it was just all these really weird things where they were like a thyroid determines whether or not you're crazy and i'm like what (laughs) is that real i don't know if that's real science it could be now but it just was worded like 1920s wording so it sounds really wrong so and if you find a reasonably priced copy of life plus 99 somewhere on the internet let us know (laughs) i mean if yeah that'd be great so thank you so much for listening. Um, if you would like to follow us, you can find us on in- at Into the Basement podcast on Instagram. Um, you can find us at Into the Basement on Twitter. On Twitter. Uh, you can email us. At With those sweet links to Life Plus 99 for a reasonable price. <laughs> at yeah. TheBasementHosts at gmail.com. Yep. Um, you can like and rate us if you want to. Uh, you can... Just drop us a line and tell us you like us. A Mm -hmm. lot of people have been telling me that they like us, and I appreciate it. So uh, thank you so much again for listening, and have a wonderful night. Bye. Bye.